Welcome to Nurturing Nature, the official podcast for the Quarry Lane Environmental Club. My name is Romul Mitter, and I'm the moderator and host for Nurturing Nature. In this episode, we are honored to have the program manager for the Marine Cloud Brightening Project at the University of Washington, Dr. Sarah Doherty. The Marine Cloud Brightening Project aims to determine whether the reflection of sunlight by low marine clouds could be predictably and reliably increased as a mechanism for reducing climate warming. In addition to the Marine Cloud Brightening Project, Dr. Doherty served as the Executive Officer of the International Global Atmospheric Chemistry Project from 2003 to 2012, where she helped guide the scientific direction of the organization and was involved in multiple initiatives to synthesize and coordinate multinational and multidisciplinary atmospheric chemistry-related research. Her research to date has primarily focused on measurements of atmospheric particles and their effect on climate. She has been involved in multiple international field studies of aerosols and their effects on climate in Asia, the Indian Ocean, West Africa, and the Arctic. It is with great honor that we welcome Dr. Sarah Doherty onto this podcast. Hello, Dr. Doherty. Hi, thanks for having me here, it's a pleasure. Thanks for meeting with us. So just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how you entered the field of sustainability and became interested in solving the problem of climate change? Yeah, so I actually got a physics degree, undergraduate degree. Um, so I had an interest in science. So I really came at this from the from the science end and have you know, been a scientist since then. Uh, I actually worked doing some defense work for about four years. So technology development and defense and wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I ended up um, leaving that job and working for the U.S. Antarctic program, actually, for a year, uh, helping run measurements there. And uh, most of that was around uh, doing measurements about the ozone hole. Uh, This was back in the early 1990s, and that got me interested in atmospheric sciences. Um, But I've always been interested in the environment. I love being in the outdoors. Um, I was really interested in acid rain, which was a big deal when I was in high school. Uh, so that really was got me. What got me started was an interest in acid rain in high school, and that got me interested in science and getting the degree in physics, and then going on from there. And um, after I did the work in Antarctica, I decided to get a graduate degree in atmospheric sciences. Um, so I got a, went back to school, got a PhD in atmospheric sciences, and then I've been doing research ever since then. Wow, that's so great to hear. So I know you mentioned that you've done some work looking at ozone holes above the Arctic. So in your experience, uh, when you worked on it, were you mostly working on how to reduce the ozone hole or just kind of looking at the effects of that? Yeah, so I was working in the the ozone holes mostly over the Antarctic. Um, And so what I was doing was doing measurements that was um, both quantifying how big the hole, the ozone hole is, and um, what was causing it. So the work that I was doing was really around why was it happening, trying to understand why it was happening, which would allow us to predict where it was going. So it wasn't so much about solving the problem as understanding the problem. Oh, wow, that's really great to hear. And of course, understanding the problem is the first step to solving it as well. So that's an interesting way that you got interested in the field of climate change. So I know that most of your work focuses on using marine clouds to reduce climate change. So can you talk us through a little more of the specifics of how this works? Yeah, so that's the work I'm doing right now is is with this program where we're we're looking at brightening marine clouds. Uh, So the way that it works is um, 
I, I know you're, you're the people who listen to this are probably extremely familiar with the fact that when uh, humans burn things, we produce greenhouse gases, and that warms climate, those greenhouse gases. But when we burn things, we also produce particles. Um, so we've added to the amount of particles in the atmosphere. And those particles um, scatter sunlight and reflect sunlight back to space, and that actually cools climate. And the other thing those particles do is um, when they're get mixed into clouds, they make the clouds, can make the clouds brighter. And the way that works is, um, you may not know that, that all cloud droplets have to form on a particle. So if you don't have many particles available and a cloud goes to form, that you know water becomes liquid, it makes a small number of large droplets. So you have a cloud with very large droplets. If you have a lot of particles available, that water gets distributed over more particles, you end up with small droplets in the cloud. And by redistributing the water over more particles like that, you end up with more water surface area. So it's like having more mirror surface area in the cloud. So the cloud becomes more reflective. So these particulate emissions that humans have been producing inadvertently when we burn things are directly scattering sunlight back to space, cooling the planet, but they're also mixing into clouds and making the clouds brighter through this mechanism. Um, and that, that was sort of the origin of the idea. So that was something that I, th those effects are something I've been studying for several decades, um, is the effect of inadvertent um, particulate emissions on the climate system and how that's been offsetting a bunch of the greenhouse gas warming. Um, my latest research is, is working with folks on how we might do that in a more intentional and controlled way and using particles that aren't pollutants but are natural, um, naturally produced in the atmosphere anyway, sea salt particles. So that was sort of the origin, the idea of marine cloud brightening is to take um, sea salt over the ocean um, and, well, sea water and spray it to produce sea salt particles, which you would add to low marine clouds, um, and that would make those clouds brighter. Um, the type of clouds that you find in certain areas over the ocean are really susceptible to this type of brightening. Um, and they, there's several large regions of them around the globe that you could, could try and do this with. Um, and the hope is that you'd be able to cool climate um, a bit. To basically, while we're not, not as a solution to climate change, but as a way of reducing the impacts of climate change while we're getting uh, atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations down to a, a more reasonable level. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was wondering um, what sorts of um, pollutants, like specifically, is it from cars or things or from factors? Like what sorts of pollutants are especially harmful in making these clouds? Yeah, so the, so the, um, the smaller particles uh, do better at, at um, making clouds brighter. Than, than big particles. Big particles can actually make the cl clouds rain and you lose cloud water. Um, the, the effect of particles is complicated. I mean, they're, they're bad because they're a human health problem, right? And if they're in really high concentrations, they can land on crops and do crop damage and stuff. So from a health perspective um, and from a visibility standpoint, obviously, it's, they're not good. Um, for climate right now, they're actually being helpful because they're helping cool climate. Uh, so the the main sources of those are it's there's really uh, any anytime you burn something not very efficiently you get a lot of particles so a lot of the particles in the atmosphere are from um, biomass burning and by that I mean like burning um, wood for uh, heat or or forest fires um, 
clear cut, you know, there's places that people are still burning uh, agricultural crops. That was the measurements we did in Africa. Um, cars used to produce a lot of particulate emissions. Diesel um, still engines still do, but most modern cars, gasoline cars, don't actually produce a lot of particles. Um, so, it, and it depends on which part of the, the world you're in in terms of what's what's producing the most the most particles. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, just out of curiosity, um, I know like clouds tend to move very often. So, when you add these particles to marine clouds, uh, do they ever end up moving over commercial areas, and do they cause anything like industrial smog or any other health-related issues? So, the particles that if, if we did this for marine cloud brightening, if we were doing this, you know, intentionally trying to to brighten clouds, um, we would be doing this uh, in cloudy regions that are fairly far offshore um, out in the ocean. And we would be injecting them from the sea surface into these clouds that are pretty low in the atmosphere. They're, they aren't very high up in the atmosphere. And they would only last for maybe two or three days. They would get rained out or settle out back to the ocean surface. So we would basically pull the seawater out of the ocean, spray it into the clouds, and it would get rained back down into the ocean. Uh, we don't expect, uh, because of where the clouds are that we would do this with, and because the particles don't last very long in the atmosphere, we don't expect that, that those particles would end up over land really uh, much at all. Um, so we don't expect any significant impacts in that sense. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you for that perspective. Um, so it's so interesting to hear about the work that you've done. And this is such an interesting topic. So I was hoping that you would be able to talk about some of the long-term effects of this solution to climate change and if it would be sustainable for long periods of time. Yeah, so with marine cloud brightening, like I said, if you the way that we would do this would be spraying particles into these clouds and they would only last a few days. So you'd have to keep doing it continuously for the effect to continue to work. Um, and so the sort of the downside is you have to keep spraying the particles into the clouds. But the upside is um, that if you stop doing it, the effect goes away really quickly. So it's not a, something where you would go out and spray these clouds and then if something happened, you'd be stuck with it for a long time. See what I'm saying? So the, the long-term, in terms of long-term effects, you'd only really have long-term effects if you just kept, you know, spraying, spraying the clouds. Um, so it's really something that you'd be doing as a, a temporary measure to hold over until the greenhouse gas concentrations come down and, and climate is stabilized at a, can be naturally stabilized at a level that's, that's less damaging. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I know typically for engineering solutions to climate change, often there are some downsides. For example, I know that some people are discouraged from protecting the environment because they believe that um, technology can serve a solution to environmental problems, so they stop with their own conservation efforts. Uh, do you anticipate any similar obstacles while approaching the marine cloud brightening project? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of discussion about what the implications are of, you know, if you have this sort of technology solution, if you want to even call it that, um, whether that demotivates people to, you know, to reduce emissions of uh, greenhouse gases. And there's really the social sciences studies that have been done in, in this area give really mixed results as to whether or not that would actually happen, whether it would demotivate. In, in some of the social studies experiments, um, when they ask people and they frame it about, you know, they ask people about their motivation and uh, about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, 
now versus after they tell them about these possible technology solutions, they often find that people actually become more motivated, oddly enough, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions when they understand that, you know, these technology solutions are sort of the alternative. Uh, so I think that it's, that's a really, it's a really complicated problem. That's really a social sciences problem um, that needs to be looked at. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, it, it seems like you talked a lot about engineering and how it does have a lot of potential to fix environmental problems, particularly by adding these aerosols to clouds. So can you discuss how people who might not be as well versed in engineering and technology would still be able to contribute to this movement and this new trend? Yeah, well, I mean, for this problem and for climate problems in general, um, there's just so much that can be done outside of the, the science and technology areas. I mean, this issue that you've brought up about um, what motivates people to you know, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, and what are our options and how do you think about all of those options and which ones do we want to pick and what are the consequences of doing different things? Um, that's a whole area that people could um, you know, become expert in and um, and work on the, the decision process around these things and, and around climate solutions in general. And then of course, communications, which is what you guys are doing. So um, this is really important, you know, getting, as, as a scientist, we're out there learning things about the climate and how it works and what we understand and maybe what some solutions might be. But in order for that stuff to be useful, people have to understand it. Um, they have to, uh, you know, hear about it and um, and contribute to the conversation about what the, what they think, what they want to see for their future. Yeah, of course. And do you think that um, raising awareness about these types of solutions would help further the impact? Like, for example, um, discussing it on various platforms just to help people know about the efforts that um, projects like the Marine Cloud Brightening Project are conducting at the moment? Because I know not many people think of these geoengineering solutions to climate change. So I was just wondering uh, your thoughts on the importance of communication and raising awareness. Yeah, I think communicating about it is really is really important. Um, you know, one, one thing is that the way that I, I've been working in climate science for, you know, 25 years, and the way that I'm thinking about this problem is different than it used to be. When I started working in climate sciences, we were aware that, you know, global warming, climate change was an issue, but it was something that was out there as a possible future. Um, it was still a point in time when we could decide to cut emissions enough that we could really avoid significant climate impacts. Um, right now, we're not in that place. Um, we are absolutely in a place where we need to be reducing emissions as quickly as possible. That's first and foremost the most important thing. Uh, and by doing that, we can avoid some major, major climate disruption and damage. Uh, but the, the reality right now is that even with dramatic, dramatic efforts to cut back on emissions, we're going to have a few decades of significant climate warming and therefore, you know, climate impacts. And so I think in terms of communicating this, I think that reality needs to be communicated to people. And then people need to think about within that reality, what, what do they think our options are? Um, we can't, you know, are they willing to live with some amount of climate disruption while we're waiting for greenhouse gas concentrations to go down? Or should we consider these um, 
these possibilities for reducing warming in the climate system and, and possibly reducing climate impacts in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. That make, yeah, that makes sense. And I would imagine that an obstacle to raising awareness about um, this project would be maybe some of the misconceptions that people have about aerosols. So can you tell us a little bit about the misconceptions that people tend to have and how you try to dispel those? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions. There's, of course, people get confused when you talk about aerosols, particularly people of my age, um, because uh, of the they sort of confuse aerosols with the ozone hole, um, because when the ozone hole happened, uh, people talked about aerosol spray cans being a problem, and that was like hairspray and deodorant that came in aerosol spray cans, and it wasn't the aerosols coming out that was the problem, it was the gas being used as, as an accelerant. Um, and it was that gas was uh, CFCs, which destroy the ozone layer. So there's a little confusion around aerosols and particles and, and, and the ozone hole because aerosols don't cause the ozone hole. Um, but mostly people just aren't aware that aerosols, small particles in the atmosphere are, are helping to, to um, offset a bunch of the warming. Um, right now, that they're sort of basically masking a bunch of the climate warming from from greenhouse gases. Um, so I think that's an important thing for people to to understand. Um, and and what we were talking about earlier, if you were to try and do this marine cloud brightening intentionally, that you wouldn't be you know just spraying particles into the atmosphere everywhere. It wouldn't be done with something that's a, a pollutant. Um, it would hope, you know, the idea would be to do it in a way that wouldn't be uh, adding to air pollution that people are breathing. Yeah, of course. And um, I know that it, since we're, uh, the plans are to, if they are to be done intentionally, to do it um, offshore so it wouldn't come and affect human health. Um, does it have any effect on marine ecosystems and marine life? Yeah, that's something that we're starting to look into a little bit. Um, what we're talking about would be brightening the clouds by maybe, you know, five or 10%. So the, the most significant effect, I think, you know, directly that we would be looking at is whether that reduction in sunlight to the ocean surface would have any significant biological impact. And so we're doing right now a first study uh, on that, uh, looking at fisheries in the, in the Northwest and how they might be affected by that reduction in sunlight if you did this off the West Coast of North America. Uh, but there's a lot more work to do in that area. Um, I think probably the more significant thing would be if you actually implemented this, um, if you produce these broad areas of cooling, of, of brighter clouds in, 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 in specific regions over the ocean, you're going to end up with changes in circulation, um, changes in rainfall, changes in temperature, changes in ocean circulations. So you need to look at the whole uh, climate system response to understand how that could affect the environment, um, not just where you're doing the marine cloud brightening, but over the whole globe. And then, of course, compare that to how the environment will be affected uh, in all kinds of ways by climate warming without the marine cloud brightening and compare those two because those are sort of the two options right is climate warming or climate warming with some of that um, re some of the warming reduced by marine cloud brightening but the patterns of response will be quite different under those two yeah i definitely think the interconnectedness of ecosystems and global wind patterns and various other um, ecosystem trends will um, possibly be affected so i think that it's really important to research those as well 
Um, so in order to help stay informed of various environmental issues, including climate warming, um, what sources would you recommend for our audience to use? Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one. Um, you know, as a scientist, I read the journal articles, but that's a pretty painful thing to do if you're not a scientist, it's even painful as a scientist. Um, you know, I really try and read, um, stick with good media outlets, you know, journal, journalists, journalistic outlets that I trust that they're, you know, that they vet their sources well, that they, you know, try and really um, make sure that they're uh, giving you good information and not just stuff that's based on ideology. So, and then if I see an article, you know, in, in the New York Times or uh, the Atlantic Monthly is one I read a lot, uh, then I might dig deeper by looking at, you know, what their sources were and, and try and um, understand that problem more deeply by going directly to uh, perhaps a scientist, you know, a scientist or a policy person and reading reading more deeply on it. Yeah, that's great advice for our audience members. Are there any specific sources that you particularly would recommend for people just to get in touch with the environmental movement a little bit more and stay updated on trends? You know, the, this, the inf if you're really interested in the climate problem, of course, the stuff coming out of the, uh, the United Nations is, is really quite good, especially with the new um, uh, climate science report that, that's just come out, um, you know, the, yeah, the sixth assessment report. So. That's just full of all kinds of information and it's a great starting point. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Doherty, for those wise words. I would now like to turn it over to Hannah Yu, who will be taking questions from the audience. Dr. Doherty, um, it's so nice to hear about the background and then the work that you've done. Um, so first I actually have a question of my own and I was wondering how you think policy can be used to promote the marine cloud brightening project or, um, tech th or the use of technologies similar to what you've been doing with your project. Yeah, I mean, so I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say I'd want to promote marine cloud brightening as a solution yet, I'd want to promote research into whether these are options for a cooling climate. And if you did them, what would it look like in terms of how it would change climate impacts? Um, so I think the way that policy could support that is, like I said earlier, um, to be realistic about what our future looks like for the next you know, 50 or 100 years, and then think realistically about what our options might be to respond to that. And that's, I think in my mind, you know, is gonna obviously have to involve um, greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but then also thinking about how would um, adaptation play out? How can we adapt to some of the changes that are inevitable in the next few decades? Uh, what about pulling carbon out of the atmosphere? How would that play out? Um, and, and then these possibilities for cooling climate through marine cloud brightening or, or other geoengineering mechanisms. Um, so I think policymakers could help by supporting research into these different options and how they could end up affecting um, people down the road. Oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, thank you. And then we received a question from Aditi and she wants to know what a normal day of work looks like um, in the Marine Cloud Brightening Project. Yeah, that's really mixed. So it's it can be um, 
everything from communicating with people like yourselves um, or the press to um, I was just writing some code to process a new data set, um, looking at the particles for the spray system that we're trying to build to go out and, and do some tests of the clouds, um, writing papers about what research we've done and need to do, um, uh, communicating with our uh, graduate students and postdocs about the research they're doing, running some models, um, some really detailed simulations of clouds and how they respond to the addition of particles. So it's a real, a real mixed bag of doing research, communicating about research, writing papers. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, um, I mean, it's so interesting seeing how, especially like I feel like environmental science is so interdisciplinary. Like I know you were just talking about uh, computer science and then also another aspect of it is marketing and then uh, biology so it's all so interesting and I think um, Roma has another question yeah um yeah so just to follow up your answer um, do you have some component of your work at the marine cloud brightening project that you find most fulfilling I know that you mentioned that you um, like the research component but is there anything particular that you find fulfilling whether it be the computer science aspect or just the biological side of it yeah I, I mean I just really like um when we have enough pieces of research come together that we start to understand a problem and then we get new insights to how something works. And that's what's really fun for me in doing um, actual direct research is learning something actually new. You know, when you're taking science classes in school, you're basically having to, uh, like maybe you do a lab study in school, right? The teacher already knows what the answer is gonna be. So you're basically running through an exercise that's already, we already know what the answer is gonna be. When you actually get to do research as a scientist, you're learning new things, which is really, really fun. So I love that. And then I love getting to take those pieces and answer bigger questions with them, which is why I ended up doing something like running the Marine Cloud Brightening Project, um, the, the whole program. Um, and I've been involved in a bunch of assessment reports that try and pull together a whole bunch of disparate scientific knowledge to answer bigger picture questions. So it's kind of two ends of the spectrum that I really enjoy. Yeah, that's super interesting. Thank you for uh, for sharing that. And then we received another question from Krithik, and I know you already covered this, but I covered it a little bit, but he wants to know like, what specific part of climate change do you attempt to target? And uh, do you anticipate that you would be able to potentially apply what you've done to um, a more extensive range of problems in the climate change environmental science area? Yeah, actually, that's, that's a really good question. So, the, you know, the climate problem is, is being driven by increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which retains those greenhouse gases retain, um, make us retain more infrared radiation, which heats up the planet. And that operates over the whole globe and it happens at the, during the day and it happens at night. And what we're trying to do is reduce what we're marine cloud brightening and other geoengineering solutions wouldn't fix that problem um, unless you're able to except for the type of geoengineering that pulls carbon out of the out of the atmosphere the thing that we would be targeting is the the extra heat in the climate system so we would be trying to reduce the amount of heat in the climate system by reflecting sunlight back to space and because those aren't the same thing um, the we're not going to be exactly reducing the, the impacts of climate change. So the, the, the way that the climate will respond to having greenhouse gases plus marine cloud brightening will be different than it would be to simply having fewer greenhouse gases. Um, 
we don't really know yet how well we can sort of um, try and change the way we would implement marine cloud brightening to uh, target more specific things than just the heat in the system, like um, you know precipitation patterns. So that's still a really open question: is is how much we could sort of you know cancel or, or remove the effects of um, greenhouse gases on things like precipitation or heat waves or anything like that. So we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah, that's really interesting seeing how you can tackle sort of a similar problem from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Um, our last question is from Sachi, who wants to know what encouraged you to join and engage with the Marine Cloud Brightening Project in specific, um, instead of some of the other organizations and other technologies that are being developed to combat climate change. Yeah, so like I said, my work up until until I joined the Marine Cloud Brightening problem was project was about the problem of particles in the atmosphere and how they affect climate. And um, the Marine Cloud Brightening project actually started before I joined it at the University of Washington, where I was already based, because we are we have quite a few people at the University of Washington that study um, clouds and how they work in the climate system and uh, particles and how they work in the climate system. So it, you know, it was just sort of a natural segue because it was an area I was already working in, um, was these particles in the atmosphere and how they interact with clouds and affect climate. Uh, and so when I learned about this project, I just found it really interesting. Uh, and then the other piece of it was, you know, like I said, the earlier, the, um, when I started working in this area many years ago, uh, you know, 25 years ago, I didn't feel like, um, I felt like there was still the possibility of of avoiding significant climate disruption because I thought that we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions to keep us within a safe range, and that really hasn't happened. So my motivate part of my motivation for joining the Marine Cloud Brightening Project was that it sort of naturally fit the research area that I was already working in. Uh, but then the other thing is I'm just seeing that we have significant climate disruption coming in the next few decades, and that's kind of inevitable uh, at this point. Well, it is inevitable at this point. And so I'd like to work specifically on something that will help solve the problem possibly, or at least reduce those impacts um, rather than just studying the problem. Awesome, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, so just in your work as a researcher, I know that you mentioned you've done some field work. Um, what's been the most surprising effect that you've seen of climate change on ecosystems? Is there anything that stood out to you that you would like to share with our audience that maybe left a lasting impression on you and how you view um, climate solutions? Yeah, so, so a number of the field campaigns that I've done where we've gone out and measured things have been um, where we go and we take aircraft and put a whole bunch of instruments in them and go fly out over the ocean downstream of major pollution sources. And I've gotten to do that um, downstream of um, basically the continent of India when the wind is blowing the pollution from India out over the Indian Ocean and off the east coast of China and off the west coast of Africa. And in all three of those places, um, you know, we were flying around in a plane um, measuring the pollution in the atmosphere, but we could also look out the window and see it. And it was just really, really striking to see how dense the, the pollution was. Um, and that you, you could be up in the air and look down and not be able to see the ocean surface. And there weren't any clouds, it was just smoke. Um, oh, wow. from pollution. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it, and it used to be like that, um, 
here in the United States, um, you know, California, Los Angeles used to be that polluted. And because of, you know, the impacts on human health, um, the United States and places like the United States and Europe, um, places, you know, with, with stronger economies have been able to put in place regulations to reduce that air pollution. So we don't have to live with that anymore. But of course, of course, in some parts of the globe, they are still having to live with that. Um, and it's just really striking to see it in person. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a really interesting story. And uh, I was wondering, so given that um, you guys are developing new technologies and in our current age, there is some sort of hesitation around, uh, or some hesitation that people or governments may have towards implementing these new technologies. And I was wondering if you uh, have encountered any sort of resistance um, from certain communities or governments as you've tried to expand the project across the globe? Yeah, so our our project is really just about understanding if this is a feasible way of cooling climate and if it is, how it would play out in the climate system. So we're not trying to like actually build all the equipment that you would need to go out and actually do this, deploy this. So there's, there's a whole body of work that needs to be done in the physical research area, which is what we're doing. But then there's this whole other bunch of you know work that needs to be done about how you would make decisions around deploying it. And I think those are uh, there's resistance. Um, there's certainly resistance to going out and just doing these things, you know, going out and, and doing it. Uh, which I get because we don't like. I don't think we should be doing it right now because we don't understand yet like how it would work and how it would play out and what impacts it would have. Um, but there's also resistance simply to doing the research in this area. And we have encountered that. There are people who don't think we should be doing this research at all um, because they think um, they're against uh, just the idea of intentionally changing the climate system. And they fear that um, it could demotivate people from from reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But again, I'm not sure that actually it's, it's if you look at the social science research around that, it, it doesn't look like that's necessarily the case. So, but yeah, there certainly is resistance to these ideas. Um, and it's not, it would, I, I hope we never have to use them. I hope that, you know, climate change doesn't become significant enough that this is something we consider. But from my view as a sort of pragmatist, I think the reality is that there is going to be significant climate disruption in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, and that people will start, when that happens, people will start wanting to think about using these, these technologies. And I would rather that they do it with really good information about whether or not they might work, and if they did work, how it would play out in the climate system and, and for humans and for animals and ecosystems, yeah. That makes complete sense. Um, do you see that there's particular pushback from certain commercial sectors or demographics in particular? You know, honestly, it's not it's not commercial sectors. Um, it's 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 really honestly uh, the strongest opposition I've seen is from the really strong um, some some of the environmental groups who, in principle, on an sort of ideologically, are against um, doing. Uh, using technology to try and solve the climate problem. They think that the only focus we should have is on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really interesting. I would have never guessed that those would be um, yeah. the major <laughs> resistance, yeah. but that's really interesting to know. I should say on the other side of that, people also sometimes try and claim that, you know, 
that the research in this area is just motivated by the fossil fuel companies trying to get to burn more fuel, but none of this research is being funded by the, the fossil fuel companies. So, Yeah, of course, that's a really interesting thing to note. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up, Dr. Doherty, your story is extremely inspirational. It's so amazing to see the work that you do to help mitigate the effects of climate change. You're such a role model for so many people across the world. So I wanted to ask you if you have any final words or advice that you can leave our audience with, and especially youth who are looking to engage with environmentalism on a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the for the compliment. It's really great to talk to you and to get to see such motivated and intelligent and articulate young people working on this problem. It really gives me hope that things will turn in a better direction, especially as you, you all start being in charge, <laughs> um, which I hope is what happens. Uh, I guess the thing I'd want to close with is saying um, it's easy perhaps to look at someone like me and, and think, you know, I want to work in that area, but that just seems daunting, like to, to trying to get to, to where I, I've gotten. But I'll tell you that that I was, um, I've always under, had an interest in understanding how things work, but I was not great in school. Like I was okay in school, but I wasn't great. Um, and I was terrible at math. It was my worst subject. And you would think that to go out and get it, you know, a PhD in atmospheric physics, you'd have to be like outstanding at math and like the smartest person in the class. And I wasn't. Um, I was just really interested in the topic. And so I think, you know, it's that, that thing of if you're interested in, in something enough and you're willing to work hard at it, you, you can, you, you know, that's, that's what should motivate you. So if you're interested in something, keep pursuing it. Um, and, and then the second thing is just what I said right at the beginning, which is, um, you know, you can have an impact on this issue from so many different perspectives from the, you know, be a communications person, be a journalist, be a, um, a policy person, uh, be an, an economist. There's, you know, environmental economics, really important. Be an engineer, be a scientist, uh, be a biologist. So there's, you know, I think really anybody, you could, there's, there are artists who are, you know, motivating people to do something about, about this issue. So take what it is that you're interested in, but don't write off something because you think, you know, I'm not the smartest person in, in the class. I'm not great at math, so I couldn't do that because you can. That's really great advice and an awesome way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Doherty. It was such a great opportunity to have you speak on our podcast. Thank you so much. It was so inspirational to hear your story. And um, I think I think our audience will be, be able to take away a lot of great points from this discussion. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it and keep up the good work. That's a wrap on today's episode of Nurturing Nature. Thank you once again to Dr. Sarah Doherty for her insight and time. You can learn more about her work and the Marine Cloud Brightening Project by visiting mcbproject.org. Please check out our latest magazine edition of Wild and Wondrous and stay tuned for our future episodes of Nurturing Nature.